Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Kathleen Stringer. I'm a professor of clinical and translational pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy. I also serve as a scientific editor for pharmacotherapy. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Christopher DeBassi, Dr. Renee Paxton, and Dr. Christopher Giuliani, who are clinical pharmacists at Ascension St. John Hospital. Dr. Giuliano is also an associate professor at Eugene Applebaum College of Pharmacy at Wayne State University in Detroit. The May issue of Pharmacotherapy contains a study by these authors titled Anoxaparin versus Unfractionated Heparin for Venous Thromboembolism Prophylaxis in Renally Impaired ICU Patients. Doctors DeBassi, Paxton, and Giuliano, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, we'll start with you, Dr. Paxton. Given the heightened risk of thromboembolism in ICU patients with renal dysfunction, why do you think that a comparison of unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin has been such a neglected area of study? This area may be neglected since renal dosing recommendations are provided for patients with chronic kidney disease. Some clinicians assume that the use of low molecular weight heparin is contraindicated in end-stage renal disease. And I think while others may calculate a creatinine clearance in patients with acute kidney injury and adjust doses based on that, which may not truly reflect their actual clearance. Many of my patients in the surgical ICU have many risk factors for venous thromboembolism in which anoxaparin would be superior for VTE prophylaxis. Many of them also develop acute kidney injury. So the controversy is whether to start anoxaparin because it is superior in their situation like my trauma patients or intra-abdominal cancers or avoid it because of the risk of bleeding due to decreased drug elimination. Hence why I wanted to perform this study. Thank you, Dr. Paxton. Dr. Giuliano, can you discuss how you and your investigative team decided on the use of the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis definition of major bleeding as the primary study endpoint, rather than uh, maybe TIMI major bleeding that, for example, you used as a secondary outcome? Excellent question. So we believe that both of the major bleeding definitions, both the ISTH definition and the TIMI major bleed definition, both capture clinically relevant bleeding events. And so as you mentioned, we used one as our primary and one as our secondary. And we had a bit of debate at the beginning when we were developing the study on which ones that we should use. So looking at the definitions, TEMI major bleed uses a hemoglobin drop of five, whereas the ISTH definition uses a hemoglobin drop of two. Now, we felt like there might be some clinically relevant bleeding that occurs between five and two. So we used the ISTH definition. However, we did modify it, and this is also stated in the paper, that if it dropped two, they also needed to receive at least two units of PRBCs for this to count. And we did this because we wanted to make sure we are capturing clinically relevant bleeds versus dilutional drops in hemoglobin. Now, our assumption that we made at the beginning of using the ISTH definition did capture more bleeding events, which is to be expected based off the different definitions. 
The other difference between the two definitions is that Timmy major bleeding only captures intracranial bleeding and not other types of clinically relevant bleeding like intraspinal or pericardial bleeding. And our and ISTH also captured a number of retroperitoneal bleeds that would not have been captured with the Timmy definition. So we had chose this at the beginning of the study, and that's how we based the number of patients we needed to enroll. If we had decided to go with the Timmy definition, we also would have needed a much larger number of patients over. Thank you. Dr. DeBassi, um, can you comment on whether the presence of existing comorbidity of chronic kidney disease impacted the findings, particularly when compared to patients that initially did not have CKD, but did ultimately develop uh, acute kidney injury in your study? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that's one of the interesting takeaways from our study is that acute kidney injury was the most common type of renal impairment for patients in both groups, about 83% with Lovenox versus uh, 54% with unfractionated heparin. But when looking at the presence of, you know, that pre-existing comorbidity of chronic kidney, kidney disease, there was a statistically significant difference in terms of the number of patients with pre-existing kidney disease at baseline. Um, and so due to the retrospective nature of the study, there's really no way for us to know for sure, um, but it's certainly reasonable to assume that the underlying baseline renal impairment for those patients played a significant role in the decision to prophylax those patients with unfractionated heparin as opposed to anoxaparin. So it's definitely possible that those receiving unfractionated heparin before they developed AKI on top of already existing chronic kidney disease, you know, they were already receiving a prophylactic agent known not to be renally cleared and thus may have been at a decreased risk of bleeding. Our study was not powered to detect a difference in that. However, it's certainly uh, an interesting area of study, we think, moving forward. Thank you. Could you also tell us that despite having better renal function based on the calculated creatinine clearance, the anoxaparin-treated patients uh, did experience more major bleeding events. What are the broad implications of these findings, particularly since use and choice of thromboembolism prophylaxis is a common ICU quandary. Yeah, so it does seem kind of in- counterintuitive that the patients with a higher average creatinine clearance experienced more major bleeding events. Uh, I think this is reflective of a few different considerations. Probably first and foremost is that our study counted all bleeding events that met criteria as we outlined in our primary and secondary definitions. Um, And those events were counted regardless of whether those events were directly attributed to the prophylactic anticoagulant or not. So that's certainly one consideration. However, I think these findings also speak to the uncertainty that exists surrounding um, predictable clearance of drugs that are renally excreted in the setting of acute kidney injury, especially when you're using an imperfect marker of real-time kidney function, such as serum creatinine and the Cockroft-Galt estimate of creatinine clearance. We know that there's, you know, a lag between the fall in glomerular filtration and the rise in serum creatinine, which can delay the diagnosis of AKI, resulting in accumulation of medications that are renally cleared. One of the benefits of working in the ICU setting is that urine output is usually tracked quite accurately and can be used as a more real-time indicator of potential kidney injury with the decreased urine output, and thus dosing or frequency of administration adjustments can be made for medications that are renally cleared 
prior to seeing that bump in creatinine, which, which may lay behind. So do you think this is in part due to the flawed definition of AKI? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, I think that's definitely part of it. Uh, in our study, we used a, an increase in creatinine of absolute, you know, either 0.3 mg per deciliter or 1.5 to 1.9 times their baseline. So with that lagging behind um, and not being a true reflection of what's going on in the patient at the time, that's definitely something to consider. Authors, thank you for your time today um, and your excellent contribution to pharmacotherapy. Listeners can read uh, the full manuscript of this outstanding manuscript in the May issue of Pharmacotherapy. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you.